Welcome to Crossroads, a podcast that explores the intersection of faith and Christian living. Crossroads is part of the media ministry at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. Get to know us by visiting us online at FAPC.org. Hi, I'm Jamie Staley, Director of Christian Education at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church. This fall, we are spending some time um, paralleling our sermon series, Holy Ground, in which we are talking about um, God's relationship to creation and in turn, our relationship to creation and the environment. Last month, uh, I met with Derek Weston, who is a gardener and community organizer, um, to talk about food justice as a, uh, a deepening of our understanding of our relationship with creation. This month, I'm really excited to be joined by Dr. Ted Hebert, who is a professor emeritus at McCormick Theological Seminary, and also uh, the author of the book, The Yahwist's Landscape, Nature and Religion in Early Israel. And I am just really excited to continue this conversation about uh, our relationship with creation, God's relationship with creation, and kind of how that looks this month from a perspective of ancient Israel, and to really take that 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 deep dive back to the Hebrew scriptures. So thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Hebert. You're welcome. Good to be here. So I guess, first of all, um, the the word Yahwist, can we dive right into that? And can you tell us what does that mean? What? Why is that an important word? Kind of go from there. Uh, fine. Um, when I began this project, I wanted to re-examine the, um, the old idea that I was taught in grad school, that the Old Testament was about historical experience, not about nature. Um, this was the dominant view, and it still continues to be the dominant view, by the way, I just read the chapter from Karen Armstrong's new book on sacred nature uh, on the Bible, and she continues to put forward the idea that the Old Testament is about his historical experience, not nature. In other words, that God is connected with the people's political and social and historical journey, but God is not connected with the natural background uh, in the Bible. I had been taught this, but I had begun to question it. And so I wanted a project to dig in. And uh, I picked one of the voices in the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible, called the Yahwist. Um, this relies on the uh, way of reading the Bible that the book of Genesis has three voices, or three traditions, or three documents that have been subsequently woven together. And the Yahwist uh, is generally considered, and I believe this as well, the oldest of those documents. So I kind of wanted to go to the source, and I wanted to go to the oldest sustained narrative that we have in the Bible in which Israel ident uh, identifies itself, who it is in the world, um, uh, what makes a human being a human being, etc., and so I started with the oldest source of the Pentateuch, which is called the Yahwist, because that source uses the divine name Yahweh for God from the very beginning. That's one of the ways we differentiate these voices or these sources. The others use the word Elohim or God at the beginning. Um, so the Yahwist uh, begins the Yahwist's history 
uh, in the creation story that's, that's now the second creation story in the Bible. That is the story of creation in the Garden of Eden. The first creation story of the world's creation in seven days was written by the priestly writer, a later writer. So really the garden story is the oldest narrative we have about how the world came into being, how humans, what humans' role in the world is, and uh, how God is related to the world. That's the Yahwist. And right. it begins with the story of the Garden of Eden. Uh, and uh, that's where my sort of first inklings about the traditional history-nature dichotomy being wrong came out. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, the, the history-nature dichotomy? What, what does that mean, and, and where, did you, where did you land on that, and how did you get there? Yep. Uh, this, as I said, uh, has been the dominant view of, of everybody, biblical scholars, commentary writers, biblical theologians, etc. So when Karen Armstrong picks it up as her basic frame for understanding the Bible— in her new book, Sacred Nature. She's not really doing anything new or unusual. She's simply building on the traditional notion. But what this notion does is it says, God is really related to our experience in society and in history uh, and in our history, and God is not connected with the natural world. So what it does is it uh, marginalizes the world of nature and in fact sort of eviscerates that whole idea that God is connected with nature. Um, and what it and then it 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 essentially has the effect to say that in the Hebrew scriptures we really have no resources left uh, there for reconnecting us with nature because it's about history, not about nature. So this is what I this is uh, I was by the way, just a little anecdote we were visiting uh, Brooklyn last week. Uh, my son-in-law teaches at St. Francis University in downtown Brooklyn. Oh, and okay. uh, we were walking down the street and he said, so if I told you that a scholar said the, the Bible is about history, not about nature, what would you say? <laughs> and I said, where did you get that? And he went from Karen Armstrong's new book. And I said, what I would say is this. That's what everybody thinks, but I've spent my whole life trying to argue against that. Mm. And that argument really started with the Yahweh's landscape. Mm -hmm. you've, you've mentioned the, the spirit and matter dichotomy as well. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, that as well? We, we read the Bible. We, we hold, us, we Christians in the modern age, uh, at least all the ones I know, have a very strict dichotomy between spirit and matter. That is, God is connected with the world of the spirit and spiritual things, and not with the world of matter. God created that matter, but that matter will pass away. So again, this marginalizes nature. It's essentially unimportant. It's, uh, it will pass away. It's corrupt. It's all of the things that draw us away from the spirit world. And the Hebrew scriptures don't have that dichotomy at all. For them, uh, the human being and God are both intertwined with the natural world and are closely identified with it. And in fact, um, uh, I've said in other places that really the world, the world, the physical world, the world of nature as we understand it is the very heart of biblical religion. 
not a margin, not something on the margins. Can you can you give us a couple examples of where you, where we see this? So in the first creation story, uh, in the second creation story, the one in the Garden of Eden, which is where I uh, I did this project. Uh, we got to go to Jerusalem for a year. Uh, to work on this project because I wanted to work on the natural world of the Bible. Mm. And fortunately, I got money. And and after I had been there about two days, I realized that I could never write this book if I weren't (laughs) living in the land of the Bible. So that was Mm. a really rare, wonderful experience. So I sat down at the Albright Institute and started reading through the Yahwist. And the very beginning of chapter 2, uh, where the human being is made in this account, the human being is made out of topsoil of arable land. I basically had two questions in mind. The first question was, when the Yahweh looked out of his window, what did he see? What was, what was his physical context? And the second one was, what did he think about it? And so suddenly we have an image of the human as being made out of the land that the Israelites farmed. Um, and there are tip, there there's human there there's Hebrew vocabulary that specifically designates arable land or farmland from uh, let's say the desert or the world in general, and the word that designates farmland is the word adama. By the word, by the way, uh, the phrase holy ground that you're using uses this term, uh, admat kodesh, holy ground. And that word means farmland specifically. And it's out of the farmland that God makes this human being who God calls Adam. So we have Adam from Adama. So the first identity claim that the Yahweh makes about humans is that we and the soil are integrally collected, connected. In fact, our substance, our essence, our who we are, so to speak, is the topsoil which was farmed by the Israelite people. So, um, you know, people have tried to make this connection in English, uh, Adam from Adama, and uh, they have said, like, uh, 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 creature from creation or general things like this. Phyllis Tribble said, uh, human from humus, which is good. Um, But I would translate something like farmer from farmland. So that the first claim that really is made about who we are is that we're farmers. And then a little bit later in the story, God puts the human in the garden to uh, cultivate the farmland. So this is an, a farmer, an agricultural identity story. And it doesn't separate us from nature in any way. It doesn't make us part of society, first of all, or part of our social world, it makes us, first of all, part of our physical world. That's the beginning point that kind of got me cracked open the door, um, and then things just went from there. And um, and we have a, a journey which begins with identity of humans as agricultural people, whose voc- first vocation is to farm the land. So in relation to the um, conversation you just had last week, um, food justice is, <laughs> the, the, is the original biblical claim about human beings. We're, 
we live and die by food and by the farming and by the food that farmers provide for us. Mm, yeah, that is really interesting. So when you were, so you you got to spend an entire year kind of in the land um, doing doing this research. Why why is this why is this important? Why is this um why is this idea important? Uh, the idea of, of seeing nature and humanity intertwined that we that we don't often think about when we're reading the Bible. So the the importance of being in the land is the importance of context when we're reading the Bible. Uh, at McCormick, which is a very diverse place, uh, we talk about social location until we're sick and tired of talking about social <laughs> location. Uh, but it's crucial because we bring the lenses of our context to reading the Bible. So for me, uh, actually uh, sort of walking on a Palestinian farm where cultivation was done with a donkey and where wheat, the wheat that basically sustained people in the Bible was being grown each year was like kind of trend, uh, an opportunity to sort of actually physically experience the red topsoil that the Bible talks about. Um, the reason it's important for us, I think, today is that uh, like, you know, what, 1% of Americans now are farmers. But uh, here, Wendell Berry becomes very, very important because he says, um, more and more of us today are living off of the land, but fewer and fewer of us are thinking about it. Um, a friend of mine, Tim Weiskel at Harvard, when I was teaching there before I came to McCormick, used to comment that there's no such thing as a post-agricultural society. And uh, I think all of these things remind us that no matter how urban we are, we basically live by farming. And, uh, and so this reminds us, number one, that we're totally dependent on the farmer's even though they make up a tiny percent of our, our, um, our uh, population. And it also reminds us that in all ways, the first identity claim we make about ourselves is that we're connected to the land. And without that connection, we have no life. That is interesting, just as far as, you know, historically, I feel like when I've, you know, we, we talk about how, uh, we have dominion over creation and that has been so skewed um, to to not be a connection with the land, uh, but more of a lording it over, you know. And so it's, it is almost a completely different way of thinking about it. So thank you for that question. That's the other thing. <laughs> the perfect question. Oh, that's, that's the other thing I wanted to mention about this particular image in Genesis 2. By the way, um, Genesis 2 usually gets like kind of under the shadow of Genesis 1, and we kind of don't realize we have such a unique second story there. And the one we all know is um, that we were given dominion, and that's the image from Genesis 1. In the priestly account of creation, Genesis 1, we're, given, uh, we're made in God's image alone out of all the creatures, and we're given rule over them. Now, we can argue from that, and I have argued that that's a benevolent kind of rule, like God, God's self would rule. 
Uh, but but it, it is a hierarchical image. It's an idea that we're in charge and that we're uniquely in charge. Now, what the Yahwist does in Genesis 2 is f- totally flips that. So not only does the writer of Je- uh, the Yahweh say, no, our, our central identity is the soil. He doesn't use the image of God um, uh, image at all. Uh, in Genesis 2. He says we're topsoil. But number two, and this goes to your question about dominion, when when God puts that first human in the garden to farm, that's in, in uh, verse 15 of chapter 2, the word there in Hebrew is avad, serve. Now, it's not translated serve. It's uh, translated till. Because it's used when farmers cultivate in other places. And so it's perfectly reasonable to translate it uh, uh, till. When uh, I, I, by the way, I don't know if you're aware of the Common English Bible translation. It's a new translation. Uh, and I was the chief translator for the book of Genesis in that translation. And... Um, and when I got to this word, I decided to translate it farm instead of till because I thought it was a more co- contemporary colloquial way of understanding exactly what was behind the writer. But if I could do that again, if I could go back and send that manuscript in again, I would translate it serve because that's the real meaning of that word. And the idea is that the farmer really wasn't in charge. (laughs) It was nature that was in charge. And the farmer did the best the farmer could to bring his practices in line with the natural processes that he was dealing with. Because if he didn't do that, there would be no crop the next year. So there's the idea there, an alternative idea from the dominion idea, that the human really is the servant of the world not the ruler of the world. So these are two really distinctive understandings of where the human being fits into the world. And um, a lot of my work has been to try to recover this, quotes lost creation story and lost image of the human being, which in many ways is really much more strongly focused on our connection with nature and the way in which we need to align our behavior with nature in order to flourish within nature. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that? In a lot of ways, uh, how we eat locally, um, how we um, sort of reduce packaging, how there, there are a lot of ways in which our food systems are unsustainable, and we need to reorient them. Um, The other, of course, huge dominant challenge we're facing now is climate change. And and there, um, you know, we're already experiencing disasters that have been exacerbated by climate change. And there's a, there is an example of the way in which our behavior, in particular burning fossil fuels, has gotten our, our atmosphere completely out of whack. And unless we realign the way we're uh, 
producing energy uh, toward clean energy and away from fossil fuels. I mean, there are many, many ways we could answer this, but this whole idea of the world as the measure by which we must determine our behavior rather than us as the rulers over that, I think just has really powerful implications for how we think about ourselves. When you when you looked at the Yahwist and, and this, particularly Genesis 2, do you see other places in the Hebrew scriptures where nature has, where nature is important, where it's it's clear that this was an important part of of their religion at this at that time right uh yeah i would say everywhere in the entire <laughs> old testament mm-hmm. um, here um, um, there are a number of places that one could focus in on uh, let me just say before we leave the creation story that it's very important that the bible starts with creation if the bible was about history it would start somewhere else uh, it would start with I don't know, Mount Sinai or somewhere. But the biblical writer said, no, our story starts by describing our role in the natural world. And this is also true of Genesis 1, as true of Genesis 1 as Genesis 2. So I don't want to leave that behind entirely because the claim being made there is the the first thing we need to say about us as human beings is we're part of the natural world and we have a vocation within that. But after that, Pretty much everything that that happens uh, is connected with uh, the sort of location of the human being in the world. So in the book of, um, well, let me just use a few other big examples. We can go back to Genesis. One is the Psalms. Uh, In the Psalms, uh, when people praise God, the theme of creation is one of the most dominant of all of the themes uh, that God has created uh, a world that's habitable and that gives us life. And this is one of the big themes. This is maybe the, one of the primary themes in the hymns that, that uh, psalmists use to give thanks to God. Um, uh, it just occurs to me also that in the book of Deuteronomy, in an agricultural uh, um, uh, society, the whole fest- system of festivals, religious festivals, was oriented around harvests. So when the harvest was made, the very first food that was harvested was brought back as an offering to God as a, as a thanksgiving that God provided life through that food. So the whole agricultural enterprise was seen as a divine enterprise that without God involved in it, uh, it would be bankrupt. Uh, another great sort of spokesperson for nature is the author of Job. Um, because uh, there, um, uh, Job is questioning the justice of the world around him. And when God appears in the world, God appears in, um, in, a, in, in nature. The, the whole speech of God is really a nature poem and uh, in which God identifies with the processes of the world. Uh, not to... Not to say too much about Karen Armstrong, but she thinks this is the only voice in the Old Testament that, that thinks nature is religiously significant. It's, it's a great one. I totally agree with her. But it's only one of many in, in the Old Testament or in the Hebrew Scriptures. So we have a, a, a kind of continuous worldview in which 
the flourishing of human life is always connected with the flourishing agricultural world, with a flourishing creation, um, with a God who is, is closely connected with the world of nature. So I would say I, I, it, I'm, I'm sad that Christians like us, when we talk about God and the environment and God and nature, think we don't have resources in the Hebrew scriptures or think we need to turn to other religions or other traditions. Now, I'm not against that. I love turning to other religions. I love turning to indigenous Native American wisdom. I think those are great, but we have the same kind of indigenous ancient wisdom that's really grounded in the world, where, where religion is grounded in the world, in our Hebrew scriptures. Uh, it's just that we've been done, unfortunately, a disservice by our interpreters, I think, uh, to say, no, it's not there. And, um, and I think we have a big task of recovering it. And I think what you guys are doing there, talking about holy ground for, uh, for the fall, uh, is just a great way of doing it because there's tons there that we need to recover. Mm. Yeah, it, it sounds like there really is is tons there. It it just sounds like there's such a a wealth of information about about this. Is, what are what are you passionate about in within this topic? I know when I was reading your uh, bio on McCormick, it sounds like you have taught courses, you know, on, on biblical perspectives on nature. Um, what, what is it that you're passionate about in this topic? So um, uh, I'm actually teaching one of those courses right now, even though I'm <laughs> quotes retired uh, with my colleague, Anna Case Winters, who's done writing in this area in the, from a theological point of view. We teach a, a class called uh, Ecological Leadership and Ministry. Um, and um, I love teaching this course because every time we teach it, we have a new group of students. In this particular group, we have mostly international students from all parts of the world, uh, Asia, Africa, um, and um, uh, uh, those are the main ones. And it's really great to talk to them about the way in which the church is being touched by the questions of how we live in the world and the way we nature is turning against us because of some of our behavior. So um, uh, I, I would say, coming back to your question, um, the thing that inspires me is to try to reteach us. As a Christian community, also as a Jewish community who who sees this work as this literature as scripture, that we have deep, deep resources for re-understanding ourselves as embedded in the world and re-understanding as our vocation as directed to the world. And it's just, to me, the, the need to do that is so great because this is gonna be our big human crisis coming in the future. That's one thing. I might just mention the latest thing that I've gotten involved in uh, through a series of things is the notion of climate migration. Uh, I'm interested in the way the Bible talks about the atmosphere and have done some work on the biblical term ruach as a way of connecting breath and atmosphere and climate as one sort of ecosystem in which we're involved. 
in the Yahwist landscape, I do that with land, but I've also done that with the atmosphere in that. And I've, I've begun to realize how much climate change is infected, uh, uh, influencing human movement. And so right now, I'm actually working on a brand new project on the book of Genesis as migration literature. And the most important driver of migration in the book of Genesis is climate change when, when famine hits the land. So we have in the book of Genesis not just these creation stories, but we also have in the book of Genesis narratives about people driven out of their home by climate change. And again, here, here's a thing that we're going to be experiencing more and more. But we have right at the beginning of the Bible stories about it and reflections on it uh, that can help us reconnect with it and understand it better. So this is kind of my big new interest uh, that I'm working on right now. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, we are um, getting close to being out of time, but I do. Is there anything that you find particularly important Um the idea of of ecological theology, I think, is is something that folks either haven't heard before or it's pretty new to to people. Is there anything within that that framework um, that you think is important for for Christians to know, for Christians to begin kind of putting into their daily lives um, that would that would help us in this? Right. I think the reason eco theology is new is because of this big dichotomy that we've been told that our tradition is about history. It's about us as individual people being, you know, rescued from the world in the book of Revelation instead of the world being renewed in the book of Revelation. Uh, so we have a whole long heritage in, which makes eco-theology sound new. And it's sad because it's not new at all. It's really where we come from. Uh, so from my perspective as a Bible reader and as a studier of the Bible, um, I think that the most fundamental thing we can do is rethink who we are. That is, um, reimagine uh, who, what a human being is. And if, re, if we reimagine ourselves as fundamentally earthlings, or as fundamentally farmers, um, then we think differently about ourselves. Or if we reimagine God as not the creature separated from creation, but as a God who is imminent in the natural world, and I think this is the Old Testament view, then whatever we do to impact the world is in a way to harm the world is in a way harming God. In other words, we're, we're on holy ground. And if we desecrate that ground, we're participating in behavior that's absolutely against the vision of who, the religious vision of who we are in the Bible. Yeah, that is, that is an important reframing, I think. Definitely. Reframing is a good way of putting it. I think we need serious, <laughs> serious reframing. <laughs> Some serious reframing. Well, thank you for so much um, for meeting with me today. I, I think for me, it is uh, it's 
it is, it's a reframing. I, you know, I think I grew up with that, um, with those verses about having dominion over things and it just didn't feel right. And hearing these, this particular look at, at, you know, nature in those Hebrew scriptures, I think is really enlightening and makes, um, makes for an easier, an easier look at, at Genesis too. And I love that topsoil. Um, that, that is, I like that as well. That is very fun. So thank you so much for, for joining me uh, today, Dr. Hebert. Um, folks at home, thank you also for joining us. And uh, we will be back next month uh, with some more practical uh, ways that you can uh, l- both learn about creation and you can make a difference in your community. So I hope you all will join us uh, next month as well. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Crossroads. Our managing editor is Jamie Staley, and our editors are Vashina Brisbane and Emily Dombroff. <laughs>